Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-dualistic, compassionate, uh, non-violent faith life. My name is Dom Fay. This is a bit of a special edition of the podcast. Uh, we had originally planned for this episode to be an Easter one. We'd already started discussing some ideas as to what that might look like. Uh, however, I think, as is the case with every part of our world at the moment, it didn't really seem like that was uh, the, the appropriate need at this um, present moment. Um, so we, we have gathered the, the full team. Peter Cat is here. Hello, Peter. Hi, Dom. Great to be here. Sue Grimmett is also here. Hello, Sue. Hi, Dom. And uh, we also have a deacon here at the cathedral as well as a GP, Anne Solari, joining us. Anne, thank you for making your debut on the podcast in pretty trying times at the moment. Thank you for the invitation, Dom. Um, and maybe you can you can provide a bit of a medical perspective at times as we go on in the conversation. Obviously, we want to have a bit of a conversation today about what is happening to each of us individually and collectively on a soul, spiritual, mental level. There's a lot out there practically about how we might be impacted, physically how we might be impacted. But we are in unprecedented times in many ways, or at least in the modern world. And our hope is to maybe be able to find a way in conversation here to resist the despair, panic and unnecessary anxiety and instead find what a healthy inner life response to this can be as well as how we can continue to do life in community in some way. Before we uh, get in the midst of all of this, I just want to ask a question to each of you, and I'll start with you, Sue. In the midst of what has gripped our world in the past month or two, um, how are you going? Oh, thank you, yeah. Uh, it is It's strange. I've actually I've been having conversations with friends about how we each react differently to a crisis and how um, I'm actually rubbish in a crisis and I've spent my life working with making sure I have someone next to me who is the cool head in a crisis and I'm, I'm the person you want if it's an if it's an accident or something that happens that's kind of um, shocking I'm not the person you want there in the first 10 minutes but I am the person you want for the weeks after that you know sure, sure. I, I kick in then and I've noticed some of my friends and I've started saying are you good in a crisis normally and they go yeah I am actually and you say ah I can see what you're doing so I'm just just uh, making sure I'm getting lots of advice and connection from those people who I know are particularly cool right now I'm um, doing okay and but just like everyone else I think just it's the change, the rapidly changing landscape, and how do we adjust? And uh, that—that's, I guess, f- making me say, how do I, how do I double down and find this centered place from which to operate? How about you, Peter? How are you going? I'm doing okay. It's very um, fast-paced change, and I'm more of a slow walker, reflective <laughs> type person. So I'm operating in a different mode, but also trying. Um, not to overreact, but also not to underreact. So seeking, seeking balance in a situation where it's very hard to work out where the balance point is. So, mm. you know, um, like, for example, the option was given to the churches to close for this current weekend um, with worship ceasing on Monday after this current weekend. Um, we've decided to have worship this weekend with as many precautions in place as possible because I think in terms of process it's really important for people to acknowledge transitions and to be given the opportunity to you know, visit the cathedral for the last time for you know, six weeks, six months, depending on which, which advice you hear. So we don't just suddenly say, oh, don't come. Mm. 
at the same time just making sure that we're doing that in a way that isn't um, indulgent or self-indulgent um, so that we actually are looking after people and we've actually advised a whole lot of people not to come but made it possible for people to be here so it's trying to find that balance point um, not giving into the panic but also trying not to be too cool so yeah mm. exhausting uh, but very focusing I'm very focused I have to say I've done some really very focused work in the last couple of days that's been um, I think helpful to me and hopefully to the community and what about you Anne how are you going I'm a worrier, so I'm very worried. Uh, I'm the sort of person who wakes up at one, two o'clock in the morning and thinks about what I haven't done, what I should do, what we could do. The context for me is that I'm one of the few GPs in Brisbane working full-time with homeless people. And as far as I can see, the government has no plans for them at all. So that's overwhelming me at times as well as the realisation as a doctor that I know that a lot of people I know in my work life, in my church life, in my personal life are going to die because that's what's happening during the world, throughout the world. Um, and that worries me because it's a situation I haven't been in before. I've read about the Spanish flu, but I actually wasn't alive in 1918. I've heard about the Second World War and the First World War, but I haven't experienced that. So it's a bit of the feelings that came from when we're expecting the bomb to go off when I was a teenager. And as a teenager, we were very worried then. I'm very worried again now. So I suppose you can provide a medical insight um, for, for us on this because we are still, in an Australian context, parts of everyday life are still going on as normal um, in our current context right now and this will probably be entirely outdated by the time we upload this in just a few days or a week but we've just about to have international flights cut off except for residents a lot of places mass gatherings are shut down all these sorts of things in other parts of the world they're in total lockdown and you sort of see what's going on there what do you make of what's going on and what, what i guess from a medical perspective do you think could be going on differently we could have been having this conversation four weeks ago when we should have started locking down. Mm. The government keeps saying it's listening to the doctors, but it's only listening to some doctors. Yeah. There's a whole group of people, and I'm one of over 3,500 doctors who signed a letter wanting the lockdowns to happen much quicker wanting things to be put in place. So there's a lot of us that for the last two months have been looking at what's been happening in China and what's happened through Asia and thinking, look, South Korea, this happened in South Korea, they did this, they stopped it. Singapore's done this, Hong Kong's done this. Why is Australia doing nothing? It's probably a really good place to start with what you've just said there because you probably articulated the anxieties or the worries or the panic in a lot of people's mind. You know, some mm. aren't worried enough, some are too worried. It's that balance that you mentioned, mm. Peter. There are some people who are refusing to interact with anybody and there are some people in any way. And there's other people who are going about life as if nothing's changed and, you know, yeah. why should they be inconvenienced? Finding the balance in the middle ground in this is a very healthy thing to do. Is that something you've struggled with as well, and from a medical perspective, or do you think, do you think the balance might be further away than, than many of us think? 
leaning further to one side. The, what most people don't realise is we've got coronavirus, which is worrying everyone. We've got this illness that's coming that is going to be serious for a fifth of the people who get it. 80% of the people who get it are going to be fine. It's mm. only going to be a bad flu or a mild cold. But for 20% of the people who get it, they're going to be ill, they're going to be in hospital. A lot of them will be very sick and some will die. We don't know the actual figure yet. But the issue on top of that is that they're going to overwhelm our health services and we've got a health service that is already overwhelmed by the number of sick people we have on a day-to-day -day basis. And we still have to look after them. Mm. We don't have empty ICU beds normally. We are already in a situation before this virus came on the scene where operations only went ahead if there was an ICU bed for the patient having the surgery. And those people aren't going to miraculously get better. We're still going to have road accidents. People will still have heart attacks. People will still have strokes. People will still get cancer. And we have to look after them as well as the people with the virus. So, Anne, if Scott Morrison, Australian Prime Minister, called you right now and said, all right, it's over to you, what do we do? <laughs> what would you be doing? I don't know because I think we've actually in a situation where we have to react to what's happening now. Things need to be shut down. I would be listening to the European countries that have shut down and doing what they are doing and what they're telling us we should have done. Mm. The message coming out of Italy, who lost nearly 900 people over the last 48 hours, they are telling us we're stupid, we should have shut our bars, our cinemas, our restaurants. They should be shut down now. I mean, we want to focus today, I suppose, on what we do with this because, Anne, what you've just said is in depth in more than a way than many of us will have maybe heard, but it is the sort of stuff many of us are hearing and not entirely knowing what to do. Do mm -hmm. I just shut my door and try to socially isolate? Well, how do I actually respond to this? Because this is my perspective on this, working in the media at the moment, has been that I'm waking up every day with my alarm on my phone I turn my alarm off and I see 10, 15 news updates of what's happened in the time I've been asleep and it's getting worse and it's worse. And then I come into the, the broadcaster I'm working for and the whole day the broadcaster is looking at different angles of this and then we go to this press conference and that press conference. And then I come home and the escapes that I might have previously had from bad news, going to the theatre, going to a sports game, going out for dinner with friends, mm -hmm. have all been taken away by this in, in a sense. And there is just no escape. And we're only a couple of weeks into Australia seeming to take this seriously. Mm. And already I know from my perspective, I have just felt exhausted. I felt drained and I felt there's... I said to a friend yesterday, I think I'm cumulatively, cumulatively having one hour a day where I'm not thinking about this all up. So the question is, when all of this is overloading your brain and your soul and you don't, you don't know where to turn or where to look, what are you doing? And so a question... You know, I, I might ask this to you first, Sue. What have you been doing day to day to try to not let this overload you? Or, or have you been able to do anything or has it been overloading yeah, you? I think at, at the moment it's been quite hard for clergy to to get that rhythm of, of finding a different way to, to be because we're so busy trying to make the transition from people being in our churches. Suddenly we're going to be priests without a church mm. in terms of with priests without a church congregation. So we're going to be priests in the church 
um, and looking out at empty pews on a Sunday and we've got to make that transition for how we can have that service happening. Um, and so we are busy getting the message out that, yes, our churches are open. Yes, people can come in and spend time in the churches. The actual buildings are open. We are gathering in at this stage still in um, small groups or online. And while we're, you know, that's a big transition for us. You know, we're having to, you know, so most of my day, I guess, is being caught up at the moment in saying, right, oh, got to buy a lot more technology, got to help educate my people in how to get online. Um, we have to find ways to just communicate and make sure that we have contact with the most vulnerable, check in on people. So that's sort of been my days. I th guess I'm looking to... Um, in in the weeks to come hoping that i can find some way that uh we can have like we've talked on the podcast before about slow church mm. and i think this is an invitation um to you know and and i hear i guess i want to flag this early is that um this isn't something that god ordains god causes mm. but i believe in a god who always works with possibilities and opportunities and i think in this moment, there will there will be something that is life giving we can find, and um, yeah, no, I'm not finding it. Particularly researching technology and and um, and streaming, you know, I'm not finding that yet in in all this rapid turnaround time that we're having to do. But I'm hoping I will find it later on. Maybe it's an invitation instead of going to the cinema, we s sit at home together, or even stay online with friends and watch a movie together and have a virtual chat, or maybe we have time to to read more. Um, get out a novel and, and do th and, and spend some time that's that's a bit slower I'm also uh, hoping that um, this is an invitation to prayer and to really uh, developing a practice I know Peter Grester in our last podcast I can't even remember if it was in the podcast conversation or outside but he talked about when he was in in the Egyptian prison uh, he already had a practice and mm. that helped him so much that when there, when he was stuck in this confined space, he already had a meditation practice that was his own. Now, um, I, if we don't have a meditation practice already, it's not too late to develop one or just to have, developing a prayer practice or drawing on the deepest resources of our tradition to, to do life differently at this time but find that wellspring of, of resource there. Obviously, throughout history, as you mentioned earlier, and we've had a, the Spanish flu, the world wars, but you go back further and you, you see the Black Plague and you see all these, these crises of human history. Peter, I know you, you know a fair bit about the history of the church. Maybe it was certainly at least more than I know. I can put it that way. How has the church historically, what has been the place of people of faith historically in the midst of crises? Well, that is a question. That the, the only answer to that is mixed there have been times when the church has been really, really helpful, and then there have been times when the church has been an absolute disaster. So, like in the in the Spanish flu that Anne's already mentioned, there was a part of Spain where um, one of the bishops said um, the church is a really safe place to be because God will keep us safe. Come to the church and say your prayers. Uh, defied all of the recommendations about spacing and staying away and the people of that congregation just about all died because the church was uh, promulgating ignorance um, other times the church has been a really useful place because it does actually give people um, uh, the resources to sustain themselves so it's one of the reasons why we're going to keep the cathedral open is that people still need 
the space to come to find themselves grounded. So the, the grounding, the grounding of religious practice and the assurance of faith that you're loved no matter what and that um, you know, God's got your back, whatever happens to you, that sort of understanding of um, not being totally cut loose by the universe, mm. that's really, really useful stuff. But at times we are also um, a great inhibitor. You know, just, just the other day I was watching um, something on the internet. A guy in the States has done exactly what the bishop did in um, world um, during the Spanish flu, and he's told his people that you can't get sick from being in church. So defy the president and go around and hug everyone that's in the church and this is a safe place shake hands hug people because jesus will stop you from getting unwell so the answer to your question is as always the church is mixed a mixed blessing mm. and what do you think in this upcoming crisis that we now find ourselves in the place of the church can be well i think we'll get both again i think there are still people who there are i've already heard um, of some people who are saying that this is god wrecking his vengeance and wrath on us because of various decisions that we've made and all we have to do is repent and the coronavirus will go away and and that there's nothing we can do about it until we do that action so the idea of you know, i actually heard of a of a religious leader who has, was saying there's nothing we can do about it. All this idea of being at distance from people is not going to save people. It's only if we repent. So diminishing human agency and responsibility is already out there um, in some parts of the church. But other others, hopefully us, hopefully we're part of a positive movement, are actually looking for ways to keep people connected and grounded to help them develop a spiritual practice, to stop them from becoming isolated. You know, three months ago we were doing big projects to stop people becoming socially isolated. Now it's a middle-class virtue, um, accompanied by pictures on Facebook of people thinking, oh, beauty, I can go home and sit by the fire and read a book and this will be sweet, whereas we know that there are people who will become suicidal, there will be relationships that will escalate into violence because... They already don't really like each other, but they work it out by being away from each other for at least eight hours a day. Now they'll be hot housing. Um, and hopefully we in the church will stay in contact with people and help them develop their practice. Um, I've already had an email today from someone who realises that for her this is a Lenten gift. In the middle of Lent, she's been given the gift of space to practice her practice of meditation. Mm. So if we can accentuate that part of it, that'll be great, um, while trying to override the apocalyptic Christians. Um, I guess it is, you know, and I know you touched on this earlier, Sue, so it is in every way, in every part of our world, a disruption. And I imagine as the three of you, as people who've worked, you know, as people of faith, there is this sense that over the past few years that society has been not really interested often in deeper matters, or it's felt at least that way, that people haven't really been interested, that it's almost like we're sort of numbed into a really safe, comfortable way of living. And I think what a lot of people are feeling now, what I'm feeling now, is how much has been taken for granted. 
how much I took being able to go to the cafe on a weekend morning for breakfast for granted. Both the freedom to do it, the safety to do it, and the finances to do it as well. You know, how much I took for granted being able to say, where are we going to go for our holiday this winter? Holidays, you know, that's something I've been taking for granted. And there is this disruption that's come that I think has unsettled a lot of people who maybe haven't been unsettled in this way for a long time, who have just sort of been like, are numbed into thinking the universe is entirely safe and this way of living is exactly as it should be and everything's okay. And I think spiritually and on a soul level, a lot of people are starting to have to ask the questions that they haven't asked maybe for a very, very long time. And then they're going to turn up to empty churches. That's why this disruption is completely different. Mm. Like we we did see here um, a bit of a bounce after the bushfires and um, a bounce after the Queensland floods when people would find themselves coming to church because they had been disrupted mm. and they were actually asking the you know, it, it actually broke their normal cycle and made them ask the question of so what now one of the differences this time is that they can't turn up to a church necessarily and find a b- bunch of people who are going to welcome them and go with them on that journey so one of the very life questions for us is how do we make sure that we're loitering with intent or someone's loitering in with intent in our church which we're going to leave open in a way that's safe for us but also also means that if someone is drawn to this place with those sort of questions they're not confronted by emptiness because they're already dealing with emptiness Mm -hmm. so we've got to make our church somehow engaging and We've been talking a bit about how we need to be constantly sort of walking through the building just to see if anyone is there who is seeking that sort of engagement. And it'll be a bit odd as we stand two metres apart and (laughs) dialogue at a slightly larger distance than we're used to, but uh, we're going to actually have to try and meet that need because there will be people who, through this disruption, will be seeking that sort of engagement and how do you provide it in a locked down world and i suppose it's going to be such a different emotional terrain in the sense that initially now it might be panic fear etc maybe in a month or so the predominant uh, prevailing emotion is uh, cabin fever and loneliness and Mm. and those problems and then maybe a month or two after that the predominant emotion is grief and suffering you know, there is sort of, you can almost see the terrain. Mm, it's almost absolutely. like we're, we're standing on a mountaintop and we can see what's coming our way and we, we can see how bad it's going to be. And how are you preparing yourself, I guess? You mentioned earlier that the the immense shock that you even have to confront the thought of people you might lose in the midst of all this. Knowing medically what's coming more than any of us do and knowing medically how ill-prepared we are to handle it, how are you staying sane right now? What are you doing in your day? I have a routine that I have to do. So I have to get up in the morning. I have to do paperwork. I have to go and feed the chooks and collect the eggs. I have to go and wake homeless people up and move them out of the doorways of the cathedral. I have to collect their blankets up so that we can put them out at night. There's a whole list in my world of haves to, which is my normal life. So my normal routine my normal meditation times, my normal things that I do are what keep me going because that's my normal. And I guess I'm a lot luckier than most people that because I'm a doctor, I don't lose any of that. I'm still needed. I will still have a job. 
I actually can consult people on the phone and get paid for it. I can still do what people need me to do. And I think the people that need to be worried about, we need to worry about other people who lose their jobs, who lose their sense of purpose, their sense of being, their sense of identity. Because there's going to be a lot of those. There's a lot of people who will not be working for the next one, two, three, four, five, six months, mm. who can't do voluntary work, who will not be needed in our world. That's a, a great point, I suppose, that you, you can stop for a minute and suddenly you realise there's another angle of this that you haven't quite considered. Um, and that's just, I think that's the all-encompassing, overwhelming nature of it that, that we're all wrestling with. Um, I, I think it might be helpful to talk a bit about routines, actually, and to talk a little bit about the actual practices to help us through this, because it is un, unprecedented for our modern world, and it is something that, you know, a conversation around it like this, I think, is really helpful to label and name some of these fears and anxieties, but actually providing some sort of a resource at the moment for spiritually, how do you navigate the, these paths? Um uh, maybe as a first level, the news about this, the stuff that you mentioned earlier, Anne, and the news that we're seeing every single day, you know, anywhere you look on social media, in any broadcast, it's just this. There's just nothing else at the moment. Mm. Um, how do you monitor to make sure that you're not addicted to that or consuming too much? Because I know there is, there is, again, a balance where there's so much essential, vital information coming through. But if you spend all day listening to it and all day reading it and all day talking about it, it actually isn't a healthy response. That's actually an unhealthy response. So, Sue, how, how have you done that so far? Have you have you had to have stages where you say, I'm just shutting the computer now? Or have you set rules for yourself? Have you set guidelines? No, I think it's too early for that. I, we're still in this just rapid response because of the changing nature of our work. Uh, so... I've best been engaged in transitioning really across to a different way of being. I think there will be a time for rules though for me and I think already for others um, where you say particularly for those who are either shut in because of their vulnerability or self-isolating that you have to have a routine otherwise you know, there's, there's, um, the, whole, the whole day could be consumed with worry and anxiety over this. Mm. And so I think routines of set times for prayer are, are good. You know, habit can be a real friend at this time. But I would also say the most um, empowering thing is, is relationships, which, of course, is the risk here is it's being taken away. I'm very conscious um, of older people who aren't used to, either don't have any capacity to access technology or don't have the skills yet, um, or or just don't feel comfortable using it. And they are the very people who are being isolated. I'm also conscious that because of their vulnerability, um, people are being told to stay away. And it's having this kind of inverse response that people, some older people I'm talking to, say they feel like a leper because people are worried about them, so they're giving them such a distance. And um, we, we know the seriousness of this, that they are vulnerable, but I, I'm very concerned. So for folk like that who are sitting at home, how are they going to develop routines that when so much of it does require technology, if you are isolated? So yes, I think the gardens, are, a lot of people are telling me that the garden is a place where they're getting some life. They get out there and they have a routine of watering in certain orders or they go and... Um, can care for the plants, the things that are growing. That's something. So a reconnection with Earth, I think, right now is a very positive thing. But, gee, you also need relationships. So that's the great challenge. 
Well, maybe I'll, I'll open this up to any of you who, uh, any of the three of you. What are some of the encouraging, potentially creative ways that you've heard of people handling this? You mentioned the gardening there, but I'm just thinking, you know, a little bit of this, to be honest, is a bit selfish for me because I'm trying to think now as recording on a Friday afternoon, how am I, I'm going to go into a weekend after the week I've just had handling the news of this every day and try to find practices and routines and activities that can bring me back to the realization that as big as this thing is, it is not life. It is a part of life and there is life outside of it, beyond it. There will be life after it, um, at least, you know, for, for many of us, obviously. I'm not discounting the, the seriousness of this at all. But what are some of the creative, helpful responses that, that you might have heard that you're doing or that people are doing? Uh, one of our um, people has had the idea of, of um, offering a chair ministry, and her idea is that uh, a plastic garden chair will be placed in the back of the car and will drive to a shut-in person's house, sit on their veranda or the, near their front door and have the distance with the, the, the vulnerable person sitting inside their safe house, plonk their chair down and they'll have a conversation through the fly screen <laughs> door. Um, you know, maybe even take a thermos so you take your own coffee. But this idea that we will get out there and try to work out who needs to have a chair ministry. So people people are... The, one of the things I'm encouraged by is that there are a lot of people who are recognising how disruptive this is and that we can actually step into the space in ways that are new. And so... You know, here, here is an idea that's already surfaced and you know, we're still actually able to gather as a community at the moment. So this is anticipatory um, type response. So I'm really encouraged by the fact that... Pe and we've had people say, uh, if we become aware of someone who needs shopping done for them or um, trips to the pharmacy done, that they're willing to do it and they're willing to do it in a way that will be safe and so on so i think i think there is always this amazing capacity in humanity after as the panic starts as our individual panic starts to subside for a whole heap of people there who actually do have some capacity to act they start to act in really imaginative ways mm. i think creativity we are all you know i think we'll see an awful lot of human creativity come from this that's mm. that's one of the good things and you know uh, the that spiritual life is a life when it's always about rediscovering generativity, you know, um, and creativity. And if people are bored enough to, <laughs> you know, I think that's actually, yeah, we, boredom, we haven't had yeah. the luxury of boredom. Mm. If people get to the place of boredom, I think we'll see the amazing ingenuity of human beings. And I think the spirit's always working there, being that generative life giving force, you know. I've just spent the afternoon actually in a backyard in suburban Brisbane where two Queensland Symphony Orchestra um, musicians have been playing on either side of a fence together. <laughs> and so they've been playing a piece, just one on one side, the flautist on one side, the violinist on the other side. And they were playing a piece together for the neighbours, for each other, and they were live streaming it on Facebook as well. So there's a lot of creative stuff coming out here. I've also seen, and, and I'm sure you guys have come across this as well, people doing letterbox drops saying, we're starting an email list or we're starting some way of our street staying in contact, which it seems kind of funny that it's taken something so severe as this to be aware of your actual literal neighbours 
Um, but but these sort of things are how people are responding. I guess um, I I guess the uncertainty of where we're going is the thing that is still playing on my mind and playing on everyone's mind. I think you know if if it was as bad as it is today, we could all handle this. But there is there is not just the fact that we know it's going to get really bad, but it's the fact that we just don't know how bad, when, and what that impact will be. Unknowing and doubt are integral elements of a faith life, Peter. You've spent many, many years learning how to live with unknowing and doubt, many more years probably than many people have. How do you live with unknowing and with doubt? Um, I think it's learning to, to name it. I think what you've just done there is a really important thing is to name some of the things that we don't know because we do have a tendency to uh, very quickly sort of... Um, reduce a problem to something that's manageable and we ignore um, we ignore some of the complexity. So one of the things, the fact that people actually think about how will we look after the shut-ins is a wonderful response to the simplistic idea that we just have to keep people isolated. Um, and we've seen lots of simplistic responses to this so far. The toilet paper panic was an important part of the process of people reducing a existential crisis to something they could manage. They could go and get <laughs> toilet paper. And you know, it's part of a normal psychology and we, just, we need to acknowledge that. We need to, each of us needs to um, recognise how we are doing that. Like I didn't rush out and buy toilet paper, but what is it that I've done is my question that has tried to make this problem more manageable and therefore made myself blind to some of the needs and the things I should attend to. So, and so you know, just naming it, saying we don't know, being able to say, I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know whether I'm going to survive this. Mm. I, I found myself only a day or so ago actually realising I had been assuming that I was going to be one of the people that cruised through this because I've been washing my hands. And I thought to myself, well, actually, no, actually, you don't know that. You, know, you don't know that. One of the things you don't know is whether in October you will have your birthday. Mm. So I sat with that for a little while. How did it feel? I made my, well, I just sat, I literally sat with it and thought, wow, that, that is profound. And, and so I think part of it is is sitting with some of those things that we don't want to. Um, you know, I, I had minimised. I hadn't bought toilet paper, but I thought, well, just you know, I'll wash my hands. I'm a good hand washer. <laughs> I'll be right. So I think we have to enter into the doubt and sit with it. So I didn't, when I sat with that question, I didn't particularly feel distressed. I just suddenly had this realisation that there's an unknown there that I just need to sit with. Well, it's funny. I was having a conversation as, a, as someone who's 26. I was having a conversation with my brother, sister-in-law and my girlfriend recently. Because as young people, we, we've been constantly told, well, you know, you're probably going to be okay if you're, if you're you know, youngish in this situation. And I said to them, if there was a disease that had popped up that we were told was going to have potentially 14 to 20% mortality rate for all people, what would we be doing right now? And all of us said, we'd be finding a house in the bush. We'd be moving there for six months. We'd be packing everything up. And then it sort of hit me as we were, we were having this trivial almost conversation. 
what I've just said is actually the reality confronting a lot of vulnerable people in our society. And and so you but but you're completely right also that I've almost been trying to make it manageable by convincing myself, well, this young person won't affect me. Mm. And then anytime a story comes out that says there are some worrying things about how it's affecting young people, I just scroll past that one. <laughs> rather not have to deal with that. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Most people haven't picked up the fact that 40% of the people in hospital are aged between 20 and 45. Mm. It's just that the people dying are much older. Yeah. Because you get so sick with it, the people who are old or with comorbidities are more likely not to survive. But young people are getting really sick. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why the approach of it's just going to be a mild cold, whatever, move on with life. Mm. I mean, it's uh, it must frustrate you, Anne, to, to see people still not taking this seriously. I don't know if it's frustrating or worrying. It's... It's surreal, mm. and I think some of the surrealness comes from the fact that I realise you just said you don't. We live in a. We don't realise how bad it's going to get, but for many of us, particularly those who are middle class, it's actually not going to get any worse than it is at the moment. If we've got secure incomes, we our rent is going to be paid. We can cover our bills. We're actually, our life is not going to change dramatically unless we're in that 20% who get sick or unless people close to us die. But our actual comfort is going to stay exactly the same as it is at the moment. There will be enough food, we will have power, we will have the internet. You know, things will carry on. We may get fed up with being shut in, but we will develop ways of dealing with that because human beings are adaptable. Most of us do adapt in good or bad ways, but it's not like the war. The houses are not going to fall down. Mm. You know, there will not be bombs. There will not be... It's highly unlikely in Australia that civil disobedience is going to suddenly be huge. You know, there aren't likely to be major riots. They're not likely to be food shortages. It's not going to be a fundamental badness like that. A lot of people who haven't dealt with death and dying are going to have to come to terms with people they know dying and are going to have to look at their own mortality. Hmm. But that's, that's not the same as our lives being difficult. You know, that's much more internal. And it's how we cope with that. So it's a very good point. And the problem, I think, might be that a lot of people who maybe fall into that bracket think, well, if my life isn't going to change too dramatically, uh, what am I going to do differently? You know, like it's not a risk for me to go out for dinner. It's not a risk for me to do any of these things. Is it? Is it from a medical perspective? I'm just trying to think about how hard it must be to communicate to a whole population. Because, I mean, the conversation we've been having almost from episode one of this podcast is why it is so important to care about the vulnerable in our community, the refugees, the people who might be discriminated or oppressed. That's so important. And yet maybe this is just another case in, in why people are in a position where they don't really think outside themselves. Is that fair? It is fair. And it's really people don't understand why they're being asked to do it. The reason people are being asked to self-isolate is not to actually stop people getting COVID-19. The reason people are being asked to self-isolate is to slow the rate down at which people get it. 
so that there are enough hospital resources to deal with them. If everybody gets it at the same time, like they initially did in Wuhan in China, and they are at the moment in Italy and France and Spain, is the number of people sick far, far outweigh the hospital resources and particularly the intensive care resources to look after them to give everybody an equal chance. If we self-isolate, the spread, the rate of spread slows down dramatically. So the same number of people in the long term may well get it unless the immunisation comes through sooner than expected. But they will come, but the severe illness will come at a more manageable rate so people can be looked after adequately. I'll ask you a few quick medical questions, Anne. And I realise this is a very unusual podcast to our normal one. It sort of moves around here and there, but I think everyone is just feeling this uncertainty of how to approach this issue. It's not it's not a single dimension sort of thing. A few medical questions that are maybe frequently asked questions. Do you think there will be a vaccine this year? Is that possible? It's possible but unlikely, but I'm forever hopeful, so I think there will. But that's the optimistic me of bit of me says that. I actually think it's going to be 12 months. To find the vaccine and mass produce it or just find well, it? Well, the vaccine's being found. I mean, it's much further ahead than anybody would have anticipated. And that's because the Chinese released the full genome as soon as they had discovered it of the virus. They have done an amazing job. And I keep on hearing my paranoid patients tell me this is all a plan for the Chinese to rule the world <laughs> or the Chinese to get rid of all their old people. Or No, there's lots of things out there. But the Chinese have done the best they can for the rest of the world. They actually warned us very early and they've actually released all their research. And people are working on that. And the first person has received a vaccine. Human trials have started. But it's going to be the finding whether it works, finding whether it's safe, and mass production will take a while. What about, is there any chance of finding a cure for people who are sick? That's being worked on too every day. I mean, there are trials coming through showing that there are drugs that do seem to be working. But this has been on small groups and it's difficult to know. Initial research trials I never apply to the whole population. So we don't know. But the I mean, there's some evidence that chloroquine, which is one of the malaria drugs, may be of help. The risk there is I've been asked by somebody already today if I can do a script of chloroquine for him. You know, and if is whether there's then going to be a shortage of that so the trials can't go through or people can't be treated because everybody's stockpiling it in case they get it. <laughs> mm. What about the other thing you've mentioned a lot and all the medical professionals are mentioning is the hospital resources. Is there any way to rapidly increase hospital resources or are we just stuck with what we've got? Well, you look at what China did. It's Australia capable of building five new hospitals, just <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, it, in theory, it can be done. In practice, I don't know whether it can be done. Across the world, um, companies are being encouraged to make more ventilators, you know, make more equipment, but we still don't have enough masks. Mm. You know, simple things we're not getting supplies through. Hand sanitizer is difficult to get. Personal protective equipment is difficult to get. Mm. Well, 
look as we as we move towards wrapping this up i mean the the thing that just keeps coming through and this is so different to normally at our podcasts around this mark of the podcast 40ish minutes in we've you know had a few discussions that have led us to oh this is what we're discussing we now have an understanding of sorts of it and we can explore more further but we don't have an understanding of what's going to happen here or what the ramifications are and there isn't an easy fix and it's just going to be this thing that we have to wake up with and have that first five seconds of the day where you think, oh, I wonder what today's going to hold before you remember again what we're going through as a, as a human species at the moment. It's just going to be that thing for a long time. So I suppose as we do move towards wrapping up, you know, the three of you uh, hold immense wisdom, you know, in your roles. I'll put that on you. Neither, none of you would take it yourself. But I am just curious to know because a lot of people stuck in their homes are not, you know, the, the only person to be able to give them any advice on what to do might be an article they read or a family member talking to them. What would your messages be? What would you want to say to people as we're preparing to go into the midst of this time, as we're already in the midst of this time? What would you be saying to people to make sure they're doing or they could be thinking about in the midst of all of this? Um, I, th- I think, well, one thing I'd like to say is that we need to change some of the language. I think the idea of calling on people to be isolated is actually not helpful. I think we need to be encouraging people to be safely connected and I think um, I think we need to be affirming all of those movements who that are looking at ways of keeping people connected in safe ways so the letterbox drop to keep people in a neighborhood together the church people who are going to go and sit on chairs outside people's doors anything that is going to ensure that the most important thing that keeps us human and that is to be in relationship with one another that that gets priority that we overcome the fear that drives us apart and causes us to use language that insists we are apart that we actually confront that and find better ways to talk about what we actually need to do so we need to be making sure that people know that this is a time to be connected in ways that are safe rather than being isolated. And what are those ways that you've been using or looking into using? Well, we're, we're going to make sure that... Um, so we've offered, we've offered for people to bring in their... We've discovered a lot of people have technology but don't know how to use it. And so we're, we're encouraging our people to bring in their laptop or their tablet or their phone so they can learn how to use Zoom so they can be part of a conversation group using Zoom so they actually be able to see other people as well as talk to them on the... But they can access that technology through a phone as well. So we're, we're trying to use technology that has a low entrance threshold and we're, we're thinking about things like putting aside a time in the week when uh, various members of the cathedral team will be on Zoom to have a cup of coffee with whoever turns up. Mm. So just, yeah, and, and it, not for it not to be an intentional thing. We're not there to have a study or to, you know, to do any of that sort of stuff. But we'll make it known that if you ring up the, the Zoom number or you get onto Zoom and you turn it on, there will be one of us sitting there waiting for you with a cup of tea. And we'll go to say, how are you going? Mm. 
So just trying to find ways to make sure that this is a time for building connection rather than a time for fleeing connection. Because if we do have more time, and many of us will have a lot more time, we could actually invest it into connection rather than that idea of sitting by myself. Mm. Right, you, Ian. What would you be telling people in the midst of all this? What would be, if, if there's one message, what would it be? I think it's actually tell the people you love that you love them. Tell the people who you want to talk to or you want to be with actually to make time to do it. Because I think that's really important because I think that really matters. And when you think of somebody, contact them. Mm. You know, don't leave it for another day. Yeah, if not now, then when? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's simple but so helpful in in a sense that... Because if we get into the habit of doing that, then the people we care about know that they're cared about, which gives their life meaning as well as our life having meaning. Mm. And if we contact people when we think about them as a habit, that actually maintains the connections we all need. Mm. And it really takes three seconds to send somebody an SMS on your phone. You know, you don't even need to ring some people. Some people it's as easy as, you know, opening your text thingy on your phone and saying, love you, and sending it. So, Yeah, I think um, there's an important place for grieving and lament in here that, that the church communities need to do. There's, uh, I hear a lot of... I, I'm, I really am resistant to spin, and I hear, I'm hearing a lot of positive spin you know, um, in amongst all of this, and I hate it, to be honest. There's a difference between finding what is hopeful and um, propaganda, you know, and I think the the propaganda stuff has no space for lament and grieving, whereas hope has space for grieving. And so who knows what we will be grieving? I know right now I'm grieving with friends who've lost their jobs. I'm grieving with people who are already feeling alone and the lack of um, the things that um, they like doing most, like coming to church, you know, and uh, that, that we have to have that space for grief. And I think also to know that, that love is not an amorphous kind of touchy-feely thing, that um, when we say we are held in the love of God, it is a very real, it's the very real hope of the world, that we are all connected that we are all in this together and that is an immensely hopeful statement that I'm hearing from lots of people uh, and but that we we are able we're enabled to show it for one another keep making those phone calls sending those texts but I, I keep coming back to that lovely verse in Romans that there's no no height nor depth no nothing in all creation including coronavirus <laughs> that can keep <laughs> us from the love of God yeah, it's lovely. And I suppose this is probably also a good time to mention that this podcast isn't a one-way medium of connection um, as well. This isn't just us talking and people can download and listen and that's it. We have a message function on the uh, on the Way Podcast Facebook page. There's ways you can get in touch through the Cathedral website. We are all going into this together and we all have to be with each other through it. So please, if you're finding isolation difficult, you know, sorry to use that word there, Peter, but if you're finding the methods of all this difficult... If you are looking for more resources, if you want to find some sort of a way to build a creative path uh, to, to approach this with, please do get in touch. Um, we would love to have any conversation individually, maybe on, on a group sense. 
We don't really know what the next few months are going to look like. Nobody does. We don't know when we'll next have a podcast. I suppose we will have to wait and see. Perhaps at some stage we'll start an on-the-way Zoom conversation or a uh, some sort of a way that, that people who listen to the podcast can join in in a conversation about, about spirituality. But I suppose um, uh, stay well, the three of you, as best as you can and and um, and stay healthy spiritually, mentally and on a soul level as well as best you can. Thank you so much for this conversation and uh, we will see you next time on the On The Way podcast.